welcome back, everybody. Time for another episode of Church Hurts and... The one show where we talk about the good, the bad, and the ugly about church, religion, and spirituality today with a dash of recovery thrown in along the way. So if you're like most of us and you've had questions about the direction of your church, maybe even become a bit jaded on the whole subject of religion, you've come to the right place. Because today, well, our show is entitled London Town, Slaves, and Grace, proving once again that we're not afraid to jump into the controversy, swim around in the sea of chaos these days, and see if we can give you some comforting ideas. Our host, well, he's an honors philosophy graduate, ordained a Presbyterian minister, and planted three churches along the way. He also taught at a prestigious university and was a teaching pastor at one of those big megachurches we all know. He was also an executive coach, but now, well, he's just an aging curmudgeon who never ceases, never quits asking the one question that drives everybody crazy. Why? Why not bring him in and find out more? Dr. John Bash, welcome, sir. Thank you, Paul. I was disappointed when my hostess in London informed me that she had set up a tour for us to go on. I'm not a tour-going kind of tourist, and I sure was not up for a tour that was going to show me all kinds of places I didn't want to see. But it's a Christian heritage tour, she explained, a bit hurt by my obvious lack of enthusiasm. I bit my lip, not wanting to appear any more unappreciative than I already had. So now I'm going to get some sappy tour of church architecture by a typical Anglican who will explain away the empty churches with some cultural psychobabble. Surely the guide won't know anything about the truly great preachers of London I would want to know about. As they sat on the steps of St. Paul's Cathedral, best known to this American mind for the wedding of Charles and Diana in 1981, little was I prepared for the bouncing, smiling tour guide to be another act of God's humor upon me a couple of years ago. Ben Virgo was his name. Surprisingly, he was not a staid traditional Anglican at all and proceeded to take us on a walking tour of London, which turned the day into one of the most meaningful and memorable days of my life. I'd like to keep telling you about it, but let me cut to the chase. In a way I never understood, Ben helped me to see how much of key moments in history can be tied back to London and even to specific places in London. So in the midst of all the questions and unrest lately here in the U.S., I figured I'd test out Ben's theory. What can we learn about racial issues from London? What about diseases and pandemics? What about God and the church and hurts? So with no further ado, Ben Virgo, welcome to Church Hurts and from the other side of the pond. Hey, it's lovely to be with you, Jack, and great to see you again. Ben, would you tell me exactly where you are eight hours later in our day? Yes, I'm in the future. <laughs> I am in uh, London. I'm in a, a, a borough of London, which is called Tower Hamlets. A hamlet is tinier than a village, and there used to be a bunch of hamlets around the Tower of London. 
and they were protected by the Tower of London. I'm actually sitting in what's called a housing estate in Tower Hamlets. A housing estate is what you might call the projects, uh, where I am surrounded by uh, a populace mostly of Bangladeshi Muslims. Uh, my neighbours either side, the mothers don't speak English, and it's fairly typical for uh, the people in our estate here not to speak uh, English. The children in their classes at school usually are the non-Bangladeshi, <laughs> the non uh, Muslim child. So yeah, we're in central London, but uh, uh, in many ways, uh, the sounds and the fragrances are closer to those in Dhaka, Bangladesh. So here we are looking like two typical white guys, and I am living in Orange County, California, which sounds kind of uh, snobby. Um, but I live in a neighborhood where my language is the second language. I'm surrounded by all Hispanics and Mexicans. We're going to talk, though, about you know, that town that you're living in that now is so diverse. But I want to just start out when I stood next to you for the only time I've ever sung a hymn with you. Would you tell us where we were and what that's about and why I would bring that up when I'm mentioning race and controversy, all of that? Where were we? Take us on a little mm. bit of the tour here. Mm. Well, it is an awesome privilege. It is an awesome privilege to be in a town where such world-changing events have happened. It's the place where we live here, when people all over the world, when they're trying to make the case that Christianity has done good for the world, all over the world, they start talking about London because they start talking about Spurgeon, Whitfield, Wesley, names who are the heroes of people all over the world. And when I took you into that particular church building, I was taking you into a, a very special place because it was a church named St. Mary Woolnoth, where for 28 years the minister was John Newton. Now, John Newton was, of course, an unusually horrible man. He was a slave trader. Wait, I he, thought you said he was the minister of that church. Oh, yeah. He, but pr before he was minister of the church, he considered he was uh, not only someone who condoned the slave trade, but he was invested. In it. He was invested in it up to the hilt. He was involved in uh, the purchase and sale of people. Uh, he, he tells stories later on when he had become a Christian and, and decided to fight the slave trade. He told the story of, for example, one time he was on a boat where down below decks were scores, possibly hundreds of people who had been stolen or stolen from their, stolen from their homes and villages. Um, sometimes they were the, the losing side in local battles. Sometimes they were criminals from their villages. But a lot of the time they were literally just ripped from their villages. And they were in this ship chained up in tiny confined spaces with nothing but Newton remembers on one particular occasion uh, that there was someone on the ship who still had something. Uh, she was a woman, and what she had was her baby. And uh, Newton remembered the captain of the ship was being kept awake by the crying of this baby. And he remembers Newton. Newton remembers the, the, the captain of the ship going down below decks, finding where the noise was coming from, and pulling the child off the mother and then throwing it over the side of the ship oh. and uh, so he could get a get some sleep you see newton saw horror he saw 
evil and uh he was invested into it he was it was his work uh he wouldn't necessarily have chosen that line of work but he certainly didn't protest it he actually was considered more horrible than the other sailors because of his bitter mouth which i find fascinating uh you and i would consider the practice of the slave trade to be uh, an abhorrent evil but the sailors around whom Nate Newton lived particularly hated him because of his mouth, which I would just propose to your listeners. There's something there. There's something to think about there, isn't there? It's uh, one thing to be a slave trader. It's another thing to be a cruel-mouthed person, a person who tears people down, finds their weak point, and sticks the knife in. And the, the other sailors hated him. He was a bitter man. All right, now something something happened though from there because we're standing in a church and you're ta- <laughs> and you're you're talking about this guy and it's a beautiful, I mean beautiful. It's not a big church though, but it's That's beautiful right. right in downtown London and there's on the wall even though this was a long time ago, there's still people are coming there because this slave yeah. trader was a preacher there. What happened? Well, when he became ill on a slave ship, the captain of that particular slave ship said, let's leave John Newton on land here. And you get the the sense that the rest of the sailors thought, let's get rid of this mean, horrible guy. And he, while he was ill, was supposed to be being cared for by the people on land, but instead they enslaved him. And he says, I wouldn't have survived except for the compassion of a local man. But after uh, a couple of years on the coast of Africa, he was rescued by a ship going back to England, a ship called the Greyhound. And it was while he was on that ship, on the night of the 10th of March, 1748, he says he was asleep in the cabin when he was woken by the horrifying sound of someone shouting, the ship is going down! And he jumped from his bunk and found, to his horror, water was just pouring through the cabin. And uh, he says, I started to climb up onto the deck, but as he was going up, uh, the captain called down, called up to him, John Newton, come down here, bring me a knife. So instead of going up, he went down. Uh, the man who did go up was washed off, never seen again. And Newton went down below decks and he found the pump and he started to pump and pump. He pumped from three in the morning until noon. That's uh, hours and hours. And he says at the end of that, I lay on my bed, hardly caring if I'd ever wake up again. But they came got him and they put him on the wheel and holding the wheel of that ship with every second wave crashing over his head. He said, I did something I hadn't done since I was a child. He said, I prayed. But as soon as he prayed, what came into his heart was, but what mercy can there be for me? What mercy can there be for one like me? But he prayed and he prayed. And of course, he survived. And uh, he says, the next day I got a Bible. And he says, uh, as he opened that Bible, he did not find a philosophy. He did not find regulations. He found a savior who comes to take the blame for sinners. And as some. So now you're telling me that that's the story I'm going to remember every time I sing Amazing Grace. That's the man who wrote Amazing Grace. So he he really meant, I mean, he meant himself. This is it. Well, this is it. And as someone has written about that great hymn, Amazing Grace, he said, there was someone else who's, who sang that song, and he said, I read, saved a wretch like me, 
well, if he saves wretches, I qualify. <laughs> and so if he saves sinners, then that's all I can bring to the equation. I don't bring any skill. I don't bring any ability. I bring need. And that was what Newton had. All he had was, oh, God, help me, please. I have nothing to give you. And, of course, that was a key moment. Later, he learned that the way of salvation was made possible by someone who comes to take the blame, who dies ignominiously, who dies looking like a wretch, although he did not deserve to, so wow. that we can be saved by faith in him. And that was the turning point. And Newton went on uh, to become a uh, uh, pastor of a church. And, uh, and uh, the amazing thing is, Jack, and, uh, and I, I told you on that day, he went from that, that tiny, that little seed, to be a man who changed the world. From that little church in, in, in central London, you remember, it's a 120-seat church. Yeah. He, in that little church, he had the ministry which affected William Carey, the father of the missionary movement. He affected William Cooper, the great poet, who, who your listeners may have heard of as William Cowper, but it's actually pronounced Cooper. And then he affected Henry Martin. He inspired Henry Martin, who went and who helped establish the uh, Urdu language. Okay, then, let, let's talk about somebody before we get in. I mean, in fact, we're not going to have time to get into uh, that. But let's talk about somebody else since we're already in the 18th century. And some people are like, whoa, you're going back where there's ships going on the seas with this slave trade all over the place. And that's what a lot of the controversy today is referring back to those times. But we're in the 18th century. So was um, was William Wilberforce a contemporary? And who was he? Yeah, well, William Wilberforce was a boy when John Newton was beginning as a minister. And his aunt and uncle were Christians. And William Wilberforce had been sent to be to be looked after by his uncle and aunt and they told him about jesus you see and young william wilberforce said oh this is wonderful and he praises prayers and so on and he met john newton the lovely old man the the, the wonderful thing if you have you ever come across this film of amazing grace there's a film of the story of wilberforce mm -hmm. and they portray john newton as a bitter bitter old man but no he was a love a lovable warm friendly man and uh, Wilberforce looked up to him as a sort of father. But they didn't see each other again for decades. But for those who don't know, who who was William Wilberforce? I speak of it as if everybody knows. Not everybody knows uh, who William Wilberforce was. Tell yeah, us yeah, what, yeah. He, what did he do? Well, he was the man who, uh, who was the, the, the youngest ever MP for the city of, for the county of Yorkshire in Britain, whose close friend was uh, William Pitt, the Prime Minister, and he was a, a member of Parliament. And he was considered to be an extraordinary speaker. Um, one great writer said, I saw Wilberforce get up to speak. He stood up on the table and I, I saw a shrimp start to speak. By the end of time he finished, I was looking at a whale. And he was a great, great speaker. And, and he, was, uh, he had a very quick wit and he could win an argument and he could also use, he could put weight where it would make the, the most difference in the, in the most time. But he himself had been won to Christianity by, uh, by, by a, a brilliant scholar from, now was it Cambridge? Yes, it was Cambridge. Brilliant scholar. It's funny. This scholar was uh, six foot four, six foot five. Wilberforce was five foot three. And 
they uh, went on this they went on this uh, tour through Europe and uh, who's James Naisbit I think his name I can't remember his name but he um, James uh, and he there's a, 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 at least one foot difference in their heights and uh, James was telling him the gospel and Wilberforce would try and cut down Christianity and James would say oh no, no I think I don't think that you're being fair you must listen to this you must listen to that and after a while Wilberforce kind of had a, a Lee Strobel moment where he realized hang on all the arguments, which I thought were arguments against Christianity, they're very weak. And this brilliant scholar from Cambridge, he's able to show me, oh, my word, that the, the, the weight of evidence and the weight of logic rests on the Christian side. Having become a Christian, Wilberforce thinks, well, that's the end of my career. I will no longer be taken seriously in Parliament. I will never be able to become anything serious in the nation's uh, future. So what shall I do? Shall I become a shall I become a pastor? And the man he went to ask for advice was John Newton. And he walked into that church building where you and I stood. And on the 4th of December, 1785, he went and met Newton. And he poured out his heart to Newton. And he said, what shall I do, pastor? Shall I, shall I become a minister? And John Newton looked at this young man and said, don't leave. Don't leave Parliament. Mm. Stay. See if you can make a difference. And I wish we had time to tell the whole story, but let's just jump to like right before Wilberforce died. What did he accomplish? This is a good 48 years later. And extraordinarily enough, it was in July, in July 1833, that uh, William Wilberforce was sitting in a home in Westminster. He had fought the slave trade for 46 years in Parliament. He had tried and tried and tried. And again and again and again had found people who would say to him, oh, yes, William, well done, well done. When it came to the vote, say, no, 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 it's unreasonable. It's unreasonable. Until on that day, 26th of July, 1833, he was in a house in Westminster when someone came and knocked on the door and said, Mr. Wilberforce, just thought you should know. They're free. You did it. He won after 46 years of fight. And three days later, 29th of July, 1833, William Wilberforce died. So he gave his life to that victory. And as a result of that victory, the slave trade was made illegal. But not only so, but the Royal Navy, which was the British Navy at that time, ruled the wave. And when British ships found slavery or the slave trade being propagated as far abroad as West India, East Africa, they would close it down. They would close it down. So you see one man walked into that church and he heard about a man who had believed in Jesus and that man would preach Jesus to him in that very room and Wilberforce, although the whole world said, no, 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 Wilberforce knew, well, I know the one who rules the whole world. I know what he's like and he doesn't like slavery. I'm just going to keep pushing and I'm going to keep pushing. <laughs> okay, so I'm looking at this from another perspective, though. In, in kind of the modern thinking... People would say, so, oh, so these guys finally woke up and said slavery is no good, but this is from colonial England. These are the people who kind of, they went around and colonized so much of the world, and depending on what angle you're looking at, that's like, wow, you monarchists over there on the other side of the pond, you were bad people. You went and made slaves all over the world. You're the one that caused all this stuff. It's not quite that one-sided is it oh no 
the British nation. Uh, it's, it's an interesting thing for us, Jack, in the, on this estate here, because we're working among Bangladeshis, talking to people from the other side of the world, and they perceive that uh, that the uh, they think this nation is a Christian nation. You have to say, no, there's no such thing. It's because they come from Bangladesh. That's a Muslim nation. If you're born there, you're a Muslim. In right. this country, uh, there have been such prominent Christians that some people think, oh, this is a Christian nation. But no, there has been... A, there has been a horrible nominal. Uh, there have been many church buildings, uh, and there have been people who have been professional Christians who have no interest at all, really, in the story of Jesus and how that changes anything. Wow. Well, I wish you know I, we're going to try to um, we're going to try to get um, you because we we have a long way to go. But for now. I just want to say thank you. I'm looking forward to part two. You can, <laughs> we, we haven't even scratched the surface. And so for now, I'm just going to say a lot more thought is worth it on this one. And that is worth the thought. This is John Batch for Church Hurts and Love God and enjoy him today, won't you? that we come to the close of another episode another edition in the story of church hurts and if you want to continue the conversation and learn more you can certainly check out christianheritagelondon.org or contact our host dr john bash a shepherd with standing stone a nonprofit ministry committed to helping care for pastors and christian leaders troubled in their own ministries if you'd like to find out more, just visit churchhurtsand.org and tell us your story. So join us again for part two of today's fascinating look at the origins of London, slavery, and grace. Right here in Orange County's only community radio station, OCTalkRadio.net.